my love is slipping charming. Life's just a cocktail party on the street. Big apple, paper, dress, plastic bags, Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. And today in the studio, I'm so pleased to have Jonathan Lethem here. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> well, it's great to see you in person again. Um, so Jonathan is actually in the midst of a, a, a national tour for his latest novel, <laughs> Chronic City. Going everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and, and still some spots to come. You were in Seattle. We I, was, talk- I was in Seattle. I was all up and down the West Coast and came back by way of Denver right in time for like a three-foot snowstorm. And uh, now, now I, and then I've just bounced back from New York City and I'm doing a little, what, Great Lakes swing on this tour. <laughs> the third coast. Yeah. <laughs> that. Um, well, before we go any further, Jonathan, I'll read... Um, your super short bio in the back of Chronic City, and then we can fill in some pieces even. Um, Jonathan Lethem is the author of seven novels. A recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, Lethem has published his stories and essays in The New Yorker, Harper's, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and The New York Times, among others. Okay. Well, what could we possibly add to that? (laughs) Well, right. Sounds very, uh, very, very... Official, but I've also been published in a lot of magazines with names like Bomb and and Turd and Egg and uh, Lockjaw and you know and McSweeney's. Catastrophe. And, yeah, exactly. Um, well, that and somehow those seem very fitting. Yeah, as, yeah. as well. <laughs> um, and and so you were actually you're you're one of the few people that I've met that you were born in Brooklyn, New York, well, instead of I'm moving so, there. So glad you raised this because this is actually the the most widely disseminated um, misinformation ab- ab- about me, and 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 I have no hope of ever refuting it. It seems right to people, so it's going to be one of those. Um, Where were you born, Jonathan? I was born in Manhattan. Oh. Um, <laughs> my parents were living in uh, in. Uh, in Soho before it was uh, a, a place where people were really supposed to live. They were in an illegal loft on uh, on West Broadway, you know, uh, when that was actually illegal. And if they'd been crafty enough to buy something there, they'd be really rich now. But but um, And it was it, a sort of commune, was it? Well, this or? was when my, my dad was a painter, and this was at the beginning. He was, uh, it was just the two of them and, and then a baby, uh, who was me. And then... Uh, Eventually, after a, a couple of moves, uh, when I was four, we settled into a big brownstone in Brooklyn. And that's where I grew up. And that's that's where I've, you know, uh, written about my childhood a lot. And so that's what everyone identifies w- with, you know, understandably. And so so suddenly I seem to have been born in Brooklyn. But, yeah, it was a, it was a big enough house that it was kind of – and my parents were, were hippies and, you know, uh, part of the counterculture. And so there were always – students and activists and friends crashing in the extra bedrooms and you know at times it was a semi-official commune uh i kind of grew up surrounded by uh interesting other adults besides my parents and and you said and you mentioned that your father was a painter and and um and and then your mom was more of a political activist yeah. of the time yeah, and- an organizer or a troublemaker she she got <laughs> rabble rouser yeah, she got arrested uh, uh a few times and once Pretty, pretty famously part of something called the, I think it was the Capitol Steps 13, a group of protesters that got moved off the Capitol Steps and then later, with the help of the ACLU, sued 
uh, on the grounds that that was actually public property and that people were allowed to to be there. And uh, some of that money helped, you know, send me off to college from the settlement. Well, thank goodness for our, our um, yeah, thank goodness for that. Because not, not that I made particularly good use of college. But. Well, it seems like you dropped out, and if that's if that's even in, true, because you yeah, know what, I will true. tell you that it says on Wikipedia that you were born in Brooklyn. So I'm maybe sure if does. someone could yeah. edit that, then some of the yeah. I don't know. You know, you, you, you start chasing down the errors on Wikipedia, and next <laughs> thing you know, that? you're 90 years old with a long gray beard. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. But um, uh, let's see. But oh, but so when you started, you were going to, it seems like, follow in the footsteps of your dad with the painting. That was yes, I your thought first I was art be an art, direction. Art, art kid, art student. And I, I, I was for a long time. I went to um, the High School of Music and Art in, in Manhattan, which... which um, Is that what's based on, like, fame? Is yeah, that, it's uh, sort of the fame school. I okay. mean, it, it's a little... The story's a little complicated because in the 70s when I was there, it was split into two schools, the performing arts building and the music and art building. And they, the two of us didn't have that much to do with each other. And it was, you know, the, the sort of dancing on the on the, the, on the, the desks, cafeteria people table. were all at the performing arts <laughs> building, whereas the the sneering painters and and um, and and a lot of kids who were who were in like, you know, teenage punk bands were in my building. So we thought fame was pretty uh, was pretty pretty pathetic but it was kind of our our school and um uh, and you were not you were in a, always in like a, like a punk band or no, in bands I was always or... hanging out with the bands it's really <laughs> uh it's really um i i'm very embarrassed when i get credit for for being a musician because i'm not one i don't have the the skill set but i was always hanging out with friends in bands and sometimes writing their lyrics for them which is something i've gone on doing and sometimes i get a kind of token you know, official membership in a band as a result, or once or twice I've taken the vocals, but since I can't sing either, that's not a really great idea. And, um, uh, but, but can you shout? I can kind of shout, yeah. And yeah. it seems like that's part of one of your new projects, too. The Is it the um, promiscuous method? Is... Uh, pres- promiscuous materials project, yes. Okay. Yeah, and it, it, does, it does involve me, um, again, pathetically writing lyrics and begging musicians to record them. So there's some of them online and people can grab onto them. And there's also examples, if you're curious, MP3s that have been posted by musicians who did uh, take some of the lyrics and make songs. So it's a whole little kind of, you know, collaborative zone there on, on my website. And it's even for stories. Or like you, you offer stories up yeah. for, to filmmakers or... Yeah, I've got a bunch of my short stories that instead of you know, making them exclusive and expensive for people to adapt into stories. Uh, these ones are are up for grabs, and people can... For a dollar. For a dollar. I think. Yeah. There's yeah. some sort of... Yeah. Con- I, I love that idea, and it seems like that came out of some, like, a, a collaboration that you did with McSweeney's, was it, Jonathan, or, well, or, uh, actually, or an idea? I, I think I know what you're you're thinking of. It's, um, I, wrote, I wrote lyrics for a band called One Ring Zero, that, and McSweeney's published a whole record of different writers collaborating with the same one band. And so it's a kind of similar overlapping kind of kind of uh project but actually the um the inspiration for my having that promiscuous materials part of my website was that I had just written this long crazy essay uh that I published in Harper's called The Ecstasy of Influence. What a great title. Thank I thought you. that yeah. Thank you. And 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 it, it was a basically a piece of you know provocation um and advocacy in favor of Free culture. Your mom would be proud. I, I hope. I hope so. And so, um, 
So having done this, having basically called for not exactly the abolition of copyright or intellectual property, but trying to shake up the whole uh, – all the assumed, you know, uh, stuff about about how every piece of writing needs to be a commodity, I decided, okay, I need to like kind of decommodify a few of my pieces too if I want to be – you know, I, w- I need to put my money where my mouth is. So I, I, I created this part of my my own – art practice where I'm giving some stuff away. And that, that is one, that is wonderful. And do you think that was, that was more possible because of, for example, like the success of motherless Brooklyn in 1999, cause you'd already staked a claim in some sort of like literary or intellectual territory where well, you have the Lethem yeah. flag. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's complicated to sort of talk about doing it from my stance because I'm, I am, you know, basically a, 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 a mid-career artist with a very traditional career, and I, I do make my living from copyrights and so on. And, I mean, the irony is most people who are very involved with free culture gestures are beginners or they're sort of anarchists who never want to enter the, the commercial mainstream in any way. And typically writers or artists, of musicians, whoever they are, who reach a, a kind of success comparable to what I've uh, been fortunate enough to have uh, kind of harden up about this stuff, and they don't give anything away. And I thought uh, that doesn't seem that uh, makes less sense. It makes less it? sense. Maybe I should, you know, do some of both. And so I thought, you know, why not um, defy the the, uh, the the stodgy profile that I, you know, that that my career might seem to be taking on by fooling around with some of this, um, you know, uh, um, free culture stuff. Yeah, and I, I imagine, and you said that um, you read the book uh, by Lewis Hyde, The Gift, too. Yeah, terrific so, book, um, very inspiring. I mean, you know, there there are several really brilliant advocates uh, for this kind of um, you know framework, this way of thinking about copyright or or cultural ex- expression or intertextuality and sampling and all that cool stuff. Uh, Lawrence Lessig is a lawyer who's a big advocate, and and Lewis Hyde is probably the most poetic and and kind of. Uh, inspirational writer on the subject well it's not a bad thing (laughs) that's for sure that's my intellectual insight for the moment yeah Yeah. Yeah. um and and it seems like uh definitely your main character from chronic city would be all about that um perkis tooth um is like would be an evangelist for this very idea his aesthetics are very much collage aesthetics you know he he appro- That's what he makes those he appropriates broadsides, stuff, and right? then he puts it up for free. You know, he recombines other people's texts and he pastes it on the wall where anyone can see it. So, yeah, in, in a way, without having any um, uh, conscious um, interest in free culture, he's a perfect uh, exemplar of that. Was that um, was that character um, like did did you know like do you? <laughs> know anyone that's like that like somebody like that that you know or knew yeah he's he's a composite of he comes from a whole lot of different places friends of mine and parts of myself and you know a couple of particular folks uh i've I've mentioned uh, and and i like mentioning uh actually especially up here in the in the the region where he's from um paul nelson is a, a the late paul nelson a great music writer who um was from uh, Minnesota and was actually a teenage buddy of Bob Dylan's. And I happened to, to get to know him when I was in my t- early 20s, and he was a kind of mentor to me and opened the door to a lot of stuff. So that part of this character, Perkis Tooth, 
where he's kind of a, a guru of culture, comes a little bit from Paul. Not that not that Paul really resembles Perkis in other particulars, but yes, he's he you know he's he's a intimate character for me. He's based on the kind of person I'm attracted to again and again, the kind of guy I like to hang out with. Yeah, because it's kind of, and it's a brilliant opportunity, isn't it, to hold forth somehow? Yeah. Like the idea is pouring, pouring. Yeah. But yeah. he's also an example of someone who's, you know, self-destructive and kind of can't be, you want to take care of that kind of person and you can't. They're, they're, they're beyond repair. We know a few artists like that, perhaps. Or yeah. people, yeah. Yeah. Well, Let's take a short break. Um, Great. Because we're not going to repair anyone. <laughs> um, today on Living Writers, I'm so happy to have Jonathan Lethem here, his latest, a novel, Chronic City. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Roland was a warrior from the land of the midnight sun. With a Thompson gun for hire Fighting to be done The deal was made in Denmark On a dark and stormy day So he set out for Biafra To join the bloody fray Through 66 and 7 They fought the Congo War With their fingers on their triggers Days and nights they battled The band to to their knees They killed to earn their living And to help out the Congolese Roland the Thompson Gunner Roland the Thompson Gunner His comrades fought beside him, Van Owen and the rest. But of all the Thompson gunners, Roland was the best. So the CIA decided they wanted... Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, today on Living Writers, Jonathan Lethem is here. His book, his latest, Chronic City. Um... And that, yeah, that was a little bit of Warren Zevon. Am I saying his name right? Yeah, it was Zevon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we missed some of the, the great vocal layering that was to come, but, but it's important. Jonathan, you're here. I know. And we want to talk with you. We could just listen to music all day. <laughs> we could. That's a, that'll be another show. <laughs> um, will you read a bit from the novel for sure, us? Sure. You bet. Um, this is, um, so the two, the two guys who, who are the heart of this book, the narrator, uh, Chase and his crazy friend Perkis, who we were just describing a little bit, and uh, this is a, just a, a a moment between Perkis and Chase that that um, I think I think might might amuse you. Um, Perkis rifled through his CDs to find a record he wished to play me, a record I didn't know. Peter Blake Vad's "Something Else Is Working Harder." The song was an angry and incoherent blues. It sounded to me gnarled with disgruntlement at those who, quote-unquote, get away with murder. Then, as if riled by the music, he turned and said, almost savagely, So, I'm not a rock critic, you know. Okay, I said. This was a point I found it easy enough to grant. People will say I am, he told me, because I wrote for Rolling Stone, but in fact I hardly ever write about music. It seemed to me the broadsides hung around his rooms were full of references to pop songs, but I hesitated to point out the contradiction. Perkis seemed to read my mind. Even when I do write about music, I don't use that language. 
Oh, I said. Those people, he said, the rock critics, I mean, do you want to know what they really are? Oh, sure, I said. What are they? Super high-functioning autistics. Oh, I don't mean they're diagnosed or anything, but I diagnose them that way. They've got Asperger's syndrome. I mean, in the same sense that, say, David Byrne or Al Gore has it. They're brilliant, but they're social misfits. Hmm. How do you know, I asked. As far as I knew, I'd never met anyone with Asperger's syndrome, or for that matter, a rock critic, although I had once seen David Byrne at a party. Yet I'd heard enough already to find it odd hearing Perkis Tooth denouncing misfits. It's the way they talk, he said. He leaned in close to me and demonstrated his point as he spoke. They aspirate their vowels nearer to the fronts of their mouths. Wow, I said. Yes, and when you see them talking in groups, he said, they do it even more. It's self-reinforcing. Rock critics gather for purposes of mutual consolation, though they'd never call it that. They believe they're experts. Perkis, whether he knew it or not, continued to aspirate his vowels at the front of his mouth as he made his case. They can't see the forest for the trees, he went on. Self-reinforcing experts, I said, trying it on for size. Can't see the forest for the trees. I am, by deepest instinct, a mimic. That's right, said Perkis seriously. Some of them even whistle when they speak. Whistle? Exactly. Well then, I said, thank God we're not rock critics. Thank you, Jonathan. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting now, having just finished the novel, that to hear from the beginning their like early stages of their uh, relationship, yeah. it's it's so funny and and nice that he's kind of diagno- self diagnosing in some ways. Right, right, right. Well, the whole book, you know, I guess the title is a giveaway. The whole book is sort of about uh, something's rotten in the you know something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Something's gone wrong, and everyone's diagnosing everybody all the time. And yes, and and so many um, layers of illusion, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Chronic City, it's nice because that's also comes back as um, uh, Chronic being one of the names of uh, the marijuana that's being right. sold. Right. Um, it's a brand name. Yeah, and ice, and uh, which which I think was like a like a setup for the, like the to prepare us slightly for the polar bear, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. That's good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. If that's what you keep want going, it to be, going. right? <laughs> if that's what you see in it. <laughs> but um, uh, what about the... Let's talk about um, naming your character, something very small in, in a very large book. But um, the um, we've got Perkis Tooth, um, and it, that's unusual. And then Chase and Stedman. Um, so how overtly did you want it? to like the instedman part yeah you know it's a kind of <laughs> and chase like chasing and <laughs> it's a throbbing embarrassing awkward symbol isn't it but <laughs> i like crazy names that 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 do stuff and that are also really memorable i i've always liked that i you know i grew up reading dickens and 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 thomas pynchon and i always thought it was terrific when the names were you know made my head spin and and char you know they seemed like charged particles that you know, bounced around through the meanings of the book. So, and, and inseparable from the character. Yeah, like it exactly. was just meant to be or so. Yeah, well, for me, I usually don't even have a character until I've made up their name. And that's when they start to take on some tangible quality for me. So, um, and, uh, and it, it sets up a great scene with um, Lindsay from Jackson Hole, too, doesn't it? Right, right. The waitress who who, who mistakes Chase and Stedman for uh, uh, Unperson. She thinks his last name might be Unperson. Yeah. 
And it, it's funny how this is really at the core of what one of the, well, the thing that this character grapples with. Yeah, well, but he also gets called, um, his name gets mistaken another time in the book when, when that, uh, that charming black kid is leading them up the hill to look at the sculpture. And he hears, um, he hears Una called, call him Chase, but he mishears it and, and thinks his first name is Cheese. So he starts addressing him as Cheese. <laughs> And a former child actor yeah, to be addressed yeah. as Cheese. Yeah, so he's Cheese Unperson, really. <laughs> you thought his you thought his name was strange, but his real name is even stranger. Exactly. Um, so you were talking about influences, like the Dickens from the early childhood. When did you come up? Like when did you come to Philip K. Dick? Like when did that? Well, I got. I was lucky. I I um, I stumbled. Uh, into his books, Philip K. Dick's books, uh, when I was about 12 or 13. Actually, I wasn't even really ready for them. I was sort of almost just stared at the covers and wondered what, what they were like. But by the time I was... Because they were psychedelic, those yeah, covers. Yeah. yeah. By the time I was 14 or 15, I was reading him very avidly and hunting up each and every last one of his, you know, 35 or 40, at that time, out-of-print novels and, and devouring them. He became a very formative influence for me. And, and uh, What was it about the science fiction or that imaginative would well you know i i think i grew up in a kind of a science fiction world in a couple of different ways uh you know new york city is is a very strange city of the future in many ways compared to the the rest of you know human history it's it's a place that's um not grounded in you know ancient history or religion it's a place founded on commerce and and possibilities and you know ambition and uh but when I was growing up there in the 70s, it was also kind of a dystopian place. It had really fallen apart. So I felt like I sort of lived in a ruined city of the future. And then even further, my parents were really, um, you know, uh, outside the mainstream of culture. You know, we regarded ourselves as sort of um, uh, fringe people. You know, and there's something science fiction-y about the hippies to begin with. They were like a utopian concept gone, gone haywire, gone to seed by the time uh, by the time I came along, and so I, I think I identified with a lot of a lot of that stuff. And Philip K. Dick was a great writer in that he expressed both some of the um, seductions of visions of the future, but mostly he showed how um, pathetic and corrupt and and you know overwhelmed by by capitalism most most uh, you know projects were going to end up being. And and I think he. He kind of called it. He kind of named the world we live in right now. Uh, so um, I, I just uh, and he's just also terrifically funny and and strange, you know, writer, great storyteller. And things are not what they seem. Things are never what they seem, and 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 they aren't. I mean, I, I've been I've been um, I I think I was given a real heads up <laughs> by reading his books because. Um, they just aren't, and um, and and you know, I think we live in a in a in a in a moment that's very interesting because the the virtual life is kind of interpenetrating reality all over the place, uh, and you know the thing about it is it's not like the predictions where you know uh, if you if you listen to you know Silicon Valley in the mid '80s when virtual reality and the internet was being first proposed it was sort of going to be this glossy seamless new 
future where we'd leave our, leave our bodies behind and everything would become very, you know, um, very futuristic. But instead, it's just a strange kind of, you know, the Internet is like a weird, endless uh, catastrophe of, you know, old and new and, you know, kind of podunk areas that people go to and hang out all the time. And it's just, it's like a, you know, a mirror to the to the complexity of the real world. It doesn't hasn't cleaned up or organized anything at all. It's just made it doubly more more strange and and impossible to to figure out, you know, uh, what's useful to you or what matters to you. And there's so much of it. And then there's if- so much of it. <laughs> Couldn't we just make the internet smaller, please? I know a couple of curmudgeons here. <laughs> Join us for the rest it's of the so hour. Big. <laughs> Could you just make it a little smaller? Exactly. But then, but in the book, it's like, it's, you have, um, you introduce like the, this, um, other, other, yet another world is your internet world, right? (laughs) Yeah. Why do you say it like that? It's like an internet within the internet. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a very esoteric image. But then again, people do very esoteric things like go to this place called Second Life. But, you know, in a funny way... That's why this is funny that it's like yet another world. yet another world. Third life or maybe fifth life. But... I, you know, in a way, How many I, do you need? I don't even think that that's you have to even think about that stuff. I know a lot if if a lot of people if they're like me feel a lot of resistance to that esoteric stuff. You know, I've never gone to Second Life. I don't want to go there. Um, but the reason I put eBay in the book is because you know everyone kind of goes to eBay without even thinking twice about it. Here's this like weird virtual store that's really not you know on its face very futuristic or or exotic but it's totally crazy there's this imaginary store that everyone goes and like buys stuff from each other on now and it's just part of everyone's life and it's like routine for people to be like oh yeah just a second i got to check my ebay auction so it's a part of the way this virtual life has just colonized our daily existence in a very you know kind of homely way um but it bears it bears noticing i think anyway i wanted to try to try to notice it a bit because it's yet another surreal dimension, which is just like walking around as well. Yeah. Whether you're in New York City or on Ann Arbor Main Street, it's still surreal, isn't it? Um, well, here, we have some more time with more um, strange things to come and more convergently moments from Jonathan Lethem and T. Hetzel on Living Writers. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Jonathan Lethem, his latest novel, Chronic City. And you've got WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. So uh, That song, Jonathan. That, yeah, that's something else is working harder. That's the Peter Blugvad song that I mentioned in the, in the reading just before, although it's being performed there by the Golden Palominos. Um, and I guess it was, that was kind of like imaginary supergroup, a virtual group. And Peter Blugvad was a, was a member of it. Um, kind of, but I don't think that's him singing the, unless he's, his his voice is really altered. I don't think he's the singer on it. It's too bad it couldn't be the the golden unicorn Palominos. <laughs> in 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 yet another world, they can be the golden unicorn Palominos. Well, so there's one reason for it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so you had this this kind of interesting trajectory where you thought. Um, that you were going to be a painter like your dad and you started off in that direction and then went to um, Bennington and then had some sort of a, like I'm now I'm paraphrasing your life, which yeah. is probably weird. No, it's, good. it's much better than me, me having to do it. Um, you had an epiphany of sorts. Yeah. Like, wow, we weren't like, do you want to talk about yeah, that? Sure. It was sort of sneaking up on me that I wanted to, to write stories and, and novels instead. And, you know, in retrospect, it's really obvious. I was, de- I was devoted to, to reading and, and, I fantasized about the lives of writers. I was reading biographies of writers. So even as I was painting, you know, in some ways this was like the, the, the secret, the lurking identity for me. And when I got to college and uh, didn't love the art classes there, partly because I'd taken so many already at that point, I was very impatient with them, um, having been an art student all through high school. I started a novel, uh, the, you know, uh, on winter break on my first, first full year as a, my freshman year. And um, I just was so much more interested in that than than. And was in, that Heroes or what? Yeah, it would have been called. Uh, no, it would have, that that one was uh, the title was um, from a Devo song. It was Apes in the Plan, and um, you know I wasn't good at it yet, and I, I had this facility with with visual art because I'd been practicing it for so long, and I was very awkward with writing at first. But I still, it was much more. Uh, you know, um, much closer to my heart in some way. I wanted to do stuff with characters and language and, and time. You know, paintings don't really occur in time. And in fact, I'd been, you know, even in high school, I'd been fiddling with tempting forms that combined the visual arts with with narrative. I'd been thinking about making film and fooling around with animated film a little bit, and I wanted to be a comic book artist at one point. So it was really obvious that I just wanted to tell stories. And you made zines during zines. that time, yeah. too. Yeah. So, But what was it about time? Like, what do you mean by that? Where the, the book is... Because you can be in a whole... Like, you can have time passing during the moment of the artifact, the book. Whereas with a painting, it's... Yeah, narratives move through time and okay. paintings kind of stop it and, and, and freeze moments. And I, I, I've just always been very interested in memory and situation and... and and language uh, and language and yeah, I just I was I was for for a hundred reasons I was better suited to to doing what I do now. So you hitchhiked across the country. You left Bennington. You said goodbye. I like your transition. Um, <laughs> goodbye, yeah, Snooty so Suderson. I need to be a writer. I'm going to hitchhike. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, yeah, I this was you know 
another complicated passage in my life was I wasn't very content as a student at college where I was. And so was it because it seems like how it was pre- like what I read about you, Jonathan, yeah. was that it was this also this realization that your family because because you had always been it had been unusual. And, and your mom and dad, what they had created for you there in the bohemian lifestyle or mm-hmm. so. And and so when you got to Bennington, there was like this this idea like, oh, there are these other people that have this this like all this like money or whatever like something yeah. as simple yeah. as that that realization too i mean this and this is something that in some ways you can still me see me still working out in a book like chronic city that privilege upset me uh, because i partly because i'd been raised to believe in some way that we were in some much more egalitarian reality than 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 was was the truth my parents were idealists and and you know the bohemian world that 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 i came up uh came came of age within um in a way was a was a pretend zone where uh class and race you know these things had been sorted out and they were no there was no longer these kind of divisions between people but because it was the ideas it was something yeah. and the passion it was something about that yeah. that was their, their more idealism weighty. i i i kind of i i i believed it too completely and so uh even though bennington was a very interesting place to be and i and and i i was wasting a lot of great opportunities to hang out with amazingly talented other students and really fascinating, you know, teachers. And it's beautiful there. Yeah, and it's beautiful mm-hmm. there. I I had a kind of ab reaction to um to this discovery that, you know, all of these kids who who were there with me had all gone to private school and had no idea what my experience of public school was like and that that was part of their being on a possibly a fast track to take assume kind of positions of privilege uh, you know, going forward, and and I felt a little bit probably ashamed of of my poverty, really, and but also defiant about it. I I, I was sort of um, sticking to to the idea that my parents had instilled in me, even though I was learning that that it wasn't so simple. So you went hitchhiking. I I roamed <laughs> to go back across to my... the country, and so I went hitchhiking. <laughs> it solves so many things, and you survived. Yeah, I did. I, I I'm still alive, and um, yeah. I mean, I had this image partly cobbled together from like the the beats from Jack Kerouac that you know uh, you run away to the to the west from from the old moneyed east, and there in the west you would find a wide open place of you know, self-reinvention and you would possibility. Find a, a used bookstore to work in. And that's what I did. I found a used bookstore to work in. And, um, and I, you know, I made a very kind of perfect starving artist life for myself in Berkeley, California for a decade where I, I was a bookstore clerk and I wrote my first few novels. I figured out how to do that. You know, the one after um, Apes in the Plan, the, the impossibly bad first novel, became my officially published first novel, my my what most people think of as my first novel, Gun with Occasional Music. And, you know, I had to hammer at it for a long time. It was published when I was 30, which is to say, you know, basically a decade after leaving uh, leaving the scene. But uh, how do you figure it out, Jonathan? Like, when you said, like, and you hammered at it, like, w- what does that mean? Does it mean that you were, like, you had absorbed so much of what you loved and been, like, in the, those yeah, worlds of those novels? Yeah, you're learning how to, how to, you know how to make narratives work. And, and you do that, yes, by absorbing, t- you know, huge volumes of them. And I was reading all kinds of books in those, in those days. And, um, 
like Raymond Chandler as well. Yeah, like there well, were those influences. The, all of the West Coast uh, hardball detective writers became very important to me. Uh, and the, Jim Thompson. The, 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 the sort of seminal ones, Ross McDonald and and uh, and and Chandler especially. And and you know that's one reason that first that first published book was a was a kind of a hardboiled detective story itself. And and by studying those books, I learned something about how to just get a, a kind of a, a narrative up on its feet, get get stories, uh, uh, you know, to, to 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 fly a little bit. And um, and that was this and that book became a success because somebody made a film of it. And no, so... they never have. They, oh, they, they keep oh, trying. Oh, they keep okay. trying. Um, it's been uh, it's it's funny. It's a perennial like film bait. That book. It's been optioned <laughs> by three different filmmakers over the years, and maybe still stands a chance of getting done someday. The the guy who has it right now, who's who's I'm I'm thrilled about because I'm I, I think he's a really kind of terrific uh, filmmaker. Is uh, Henry Selick, whom he makes uh, like gloomy, intense animated films. He made um, uh, Coraline. And he he made um, I mean he's his most famous thing everyone thinks uh, someone else made it he made uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas for Tim Burton and Tim Burton produced that movie but his his name is so famous that his name is sort of on it but Henry, Henry Selick was the animator and um, and he's uh, he's cool I think he might make something pretty great out of it who knows um, but it seems but did that first optioner did that because it seems like did that give you having some it, sort of a... absolutely having it optioned forget making a film, just having it optioned, uh, gave me this incredible uh, chance because the, the money back then, uh, for me as a, the, you know, a, a 30, 31-year-old uh, bookstore clerk was a tremendous opportunity to sort of stop uh, working in the bookshop and, and, and live full-time as a writer. Of course, it's ironic now because that was very much like you know, living alone in a tiny apartment in Berkeley standards. If I'd been given the same amount of money today, I'd just like use it to pay off one credit card bill and it wouldn't change anything. But, um, but then it it was a different time. It seemed like I was made and, and, uh, but and you could take that risk. Yeah, exactly. I could take that risk. I didn't have health insurance and I, I, I just was, uh, was, was willing to, to take a leap into the unknown. And so I, I, uh, I, it seemed like um, the greatest the greatest opportunity and vote of confidence that the world could possibly hand me. And and then you and and then you got the MacArthur grant some years later. Yeah, which is <laughs> so a, there you go, the genius same kind mantle of thing on on this on a larger scale. I mean, it just was it was a rescue at the time it came along, and it, it yeah it let me keep going doing just only the work I wanted to do. And Chronic City is very directly the result of of that piece of luck yeah and and it's also what you 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 definitely made of the luck with that because i can only imagine like if you had stopped working at the bookstore suddenly you have like a life without like the the monday through like because a bookstore you work almost all the week you could work on the weekend as well it's so then there's so you must have had some sort of determination where you knew how to run into this writing like or where you were determined or something yeah i i never have had that um anxiety at having too many hours free in the day i know some some writers get tripped up the first chance they have to be full-time because suddenly this like you know 
there's, there's this d- desert of hours and they don't know how to fill them all. But I was... Or like the wealth of hours yeah, or so. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, I didn't, I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't stumble over that. I was, I was excited to have more time to write and, and put it to pretty good use. And, uh, you know, haven't really ever, ever looked back. And you were able to finish projects too. Yeah. It's, I yeah, guess I, I'm, I'm a pretty good finisher. <laughs> it comes from it comes from my obsessive compulsive disorder. I like I like revising things and fixing them. So and kind of getting in there. Yeah. Well, well, well. Great. So more on this when we come back. We're going to take a short break um, today on the program. Jonathan Lethem, his latest novel, Chronic City. I'm T Hetzel, and we've got Brian Delaney in the engineering seat. We'll be back. There's nothing to do And there's nothing to say Everything I know I knew yesterday Until something new Comes around Let's go take some drugs Drive around Oh, let's do something dumb Get into a fight I'd rather get beat up And sit around all night Let's go get some lights Let's go get some sound Go get some drugs. Let's go drive around. <laughs> You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Jonathan Lethem is here. His novel, Chronic City. And um, Jonathan's been driving around, no flying around on, yeah. on a book yeah. tour and uh, midway through surviving. Well, you, know, you can take more drugs if you're flying because you're <laughs> answerable to no, you know, no authority. It's true. Just sometimes. a passenger. <laughs> Um, and sometimes you need beta blockers or whatever, yeah. you know, just, just to keep on going. What, what, what's that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> I know that could be a whole nother segment. <laughs> Will you come back again, yes. Jonathan? And yeah. <laughs> continue this conversation. Dr. Lethem is at the mic. Exactly. Five okay. cents. <laughs> no, there's been an inflation since peanuts. I'm, I'm sure. Um, so, so Jonathan, like you've got this, so you write, um, do, have you ever written a poem? Oh, I wrote a bunch of poems when I was, uh, in college, actually in that transitional moment that we were just talking about, I thought for a little while I, I could, I could be a poet. And, and in some ways that impulse still, you know, kind of hides, uh, inside all this song lyric writing that I do for, for, for friends who are musicians. Um, I like, I like rhyming and I like kind of fiddling with with poetic lines and and compression um but i don't think i think i you know my natural uh, uh leaning is to to make long crazy s- stories to be elaborate and and go on for for years the, the way i do in the novels <laughs> i wonder if you could do some sort of very long disjointed crazy poem I, too though I probably could with the lyric yeah. but then i might also... challenge you okay. <laughs> Or, it's a, but you might it's a better challenge than, than, than going back and fixing all the problems of, 
of Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, your long gray beard. <laughs> In either case, I'd end up with a long gray beard, but um, but 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 that would be a more satisfying way to get there. Yeah, I wonder what. Yeah, what would? Well, you know, when I read your book, Motherless Brooklyn, um, which I loved, that some it's weird how the years pile up. Like some time ago now. Um, yeah, it's a ten-year-old book. Yeah. Look, it can walk, it can move around, it plays baseball now. <laughs> but I didn't, I guess I didn't understand the significance of the title just until today, too, with um, like that, that loss and, and being, I guess, like how those pieces of autobiography, of course, are always driving are like the fiction as well. Yeah. Yeah, it gets in everywhere. I mean, I, I, I pretty much can't even start being interested in a book or a or set of characters if I'm not kind of laying something about myself out out there. But it, it, it hides at different levels of the work. So sometimes a book will seem autobiographical to people the way, uh, well, especially one called The Fortress of Solitude that came after Motherless Brooklyn does. It invites that, that thought. It, you know, it strikes people as being personal. But all, they're all personal. They, they always have that element. Yeah. Even the science fiction ones. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a way, the the most... You're, you're speaking of my mother's death when I was 14. The most directly I've ever gone at that is in uh, the book that precedes Motherless Brooklyn called uh, Girl in Landscape, where in the first few chapters, I pretty much just kind of exactly lay out what it was like to, to have her die of a, a brain tumor when I was a teenager. And I hadn't, I hadn't gone at that in any of the other works, but that book is mostly set... Uh, on uh, on another planet, and so people don't think of it as an autobiographical piece. And the narrator is is a girl. Is a girl, right? Right. It, was that a reason? Like, is that why you chose to to have the narrator as a girl? Like, as as like one filter or distancing part, so it wasn't. Well, for me, so it's a way it, to talk about it. It isn't a matter of like trying to hide or no, or, no. or you know keep the the you know the the material um, tricky in some way. It's more that for me. I'm activated as an, as a as a writer by putting together something very invented and something very real. And so that's always what makes it come to life and 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 start moving for me. And so yeah, in this case the extremely documentary quality of the the mother's illness at the beginning of that book with the extremely fantastical and and different uh story of this um, adolescent girl who's going to end up living on, you know, basically Mars. Uh, I don't know. It just clicked in. It became a story that I needed to tell. And, and the the invention drives the confession and vice versa. The two go together. Have you said that before, Jonathan? No, not like that. Because that was not awesome. Exactly. Good, good. <laughs> the invention drives the confession. <laughs> Tune in next week when <laughs> Jonathan gives us more epiphanies um and was that that was that also the book where where you had also brought in like a john wayne movie yeah, to bear? I, was, I, I mean here i've talked about it as if it were a science fiction book and in some ways it is on, on in the externals but in its soul i think that book is an attempt to do a john ford western like the searchers or the man who shot liberty valance i mean explicitly makes reference to both of those films in in certain of its scenes and there's a primary male figure uh, who's this sort of anti-heroic uh, bullying cowboy guy on this on this planet who yeah is very much John Wayne in my mind and and it was an attempt to grapple with some of the power that I'd found residing in those movies when I you know I came to them very late um, I, I started watching classic American westerns when I was in my 
late 20s, and, and they were a revelation to me. And, and John Wayne, who I'd always, you know, I'd had the typical um, dismissive, you know, always some sort of right-wing bigot kind of impression of Wayne, but his power as an actor, his ability to embody uh, really complicated, um, you know, appealing but monstrous characters uh, was extraordinary to me, and I wanted to see if I could import some of that into the into the book. And how you talk about these books, it's definitely as if they're almost um, beings, right? Which is, yeah. well, I don't know, maybe well, not if, true. if they're working, you know, they become worlds that, you know, for the time that you're, you're writing them, you really are living in this other, you know, other place that's, you know, that you're engaged with. And, and it's not that it's running away from you. I always think that writers are being kind of um, uh, sentimental when they talk about their characters taking over stories, but that you're in some kind of very organic engagement with it and you're discovering it by writing it as you go and that that becomes uh, so compelling that it's, you know, it, it almost feels like a guilty pleasure that you've gotten to have this double life for a while. And something about the mind, that knowing your mind in 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 a different way. Well, you you write anything, I think, to find out what you think or or feel. And uh you know, anyway, for me that's how it f- feels when it's working right. That that um I I'm I, I go into the project with inklings, suspicions about what I'm, what I'm after, or why I'm, you know, kind of compelled or upset or fascinated with these characters or situations that I'm just barely glimpsing as I plan the project, and then I, I unearth those feelings. I find I find them as I go. What does it take for you to know that this is something that is going to be a project? Like when you're meeting the characters or whatever, whatever those inklings are. Like, what do you well, know? I mean, it's hard to say. It's it's often different each time out. But the one signature that I that I I I, I could describe is that it often is, you know, there are a lot of things I become interested in, or I, I'm continued continually interested in. But it's when two really d- apparently deeply unrelated matters suddenly seem to have some charge towards one another that they're drawn together, even though there's no way you could demonstrate why. For instance, Tourette syndrome and Brooklyn belong in the same space. But for me, it got so that uh, that idea seemed like one idea to me, Tourette's on the streets in Brooklyn. And, and, and then, you know, then I'm, I'm uh, underway, because in a way, what I have to do is both explore and demonstrate why the two things have come into this relationship. And with Motherless Brooklyn, the the book that you're just referring to, that entity, you had said about it that even if it wasn't me to write it, this book would have existed. <laughs> so how do you have a sense? Like, yeah. was, I, was that just you being overly humble? Or Well, I, I think that um, I made that remark actually at a time when I was feeling that um, Motherless Brooklyn was almost... Uh, overrated within within my own efforts because I think that if you you know I think with a book like Chronic City for instance or Girl and Landscape which we were discussing just a bit before I really don't think you could th- throw anyone the set of elements and have them think it was a book but it, <laughs> there are probably a hundred writers who if you'd said do a detective with Tourette syndrome who's kind of an anti-hard-boiled detective, a soft-boiled detective. They could have made something happen. I wouldn't have come out exactly as I'd 
as I did it. Um, and it certainly wouldn't have had the, the autobiographical elements, the, the passion for, for the Brooklyn streets that, that in some ways is the, you know, the part of that book that matters the most to me. It has nothing to do with detectives or Tourette's. But you can imagine that someone else could write a book about that. But you did. Thank I, goodness. I did. <laughs> yes. Happened to be me. Happened to be you. Um, and and you also. So you're you're writing fiction, and um, and now we know that you're going to be writing that poem till you have the long gray right. beard. Um, and so and you're an essayist too. Like what what do what do the um, and and one that I wish I had read before our, our talk was the the genius of Bob Dylan. Um, so. How did you come to that, and what is it? What what is what does it take? Like, why do you write about Bob Dylan instead of maybe putting him in a novel, or right. why do you talk about him as an essay? Well, that I mean, that particular piece was an assignment and an incredibly peachy one. I was I was offered a chance to interview Dylan, and and he's he's not as impossible to to interview as his reputation sometimes suggests. Uh, it's actually given hundreds over the years by now, but. Nowadays, when he has an album, a new album, he tends to give one substantial interview to, you know, either Time Magazine or, in this case, Rolling Stone. And getting that, getting tapped to be the writer for that assignment is kind of a, if you're, if you're a Dylan fan. What a big deal. It's a big deal. It's (laughs) fun. And um, because Dylan studies is also so, it's like this, you know, it's the closest, you know, pop culture has probably ever come to it. Like an academic discipline of its own is like, you know is is the the you know the Dylan scholars and so you you immediately kind of enter this weird canonical space because his interviews all get published in hard covers eventually and you know quoted by all the other Dylanologists quite quite jealously and um so but for me it was also surreal because I'd spent I'd simply spent my life with this guy as a kind of presence he was a he was my my mother's favorite musician and I, you know his records were in my house and I just it was like second nature and I've uh, attempted to leave him behind at times when, you know, as as teenagers do, I didn't think my parents' stuff was cool and I wanted to be into punk. So for, for a while for me, Dylan was associated with a sort of, you know, granola hippie stuff that I was trying to replace by being interested in Devo and The Clash instead. But, you know, it, very quickly I came full circle and uh, realized that actually there wouldn't really be very much of these other things if there hadn't been this kind of astounding creator who you know changed the changed the terms that you know um that popular music were 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 going to be made under and um so by the time i'd gotten to interview him i'd been i was a amateur dylanologist i'd been reading all of that stuff and studying his records and i was into bootlegs and all the you know you know the 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 deeper layers of of a fascination with him that uh, you know that you could possibly be, and of course, one of the interesting things about meeting Dylan is he is not a Dylanologist. Uh, he's not he's not listening to all this stuff or or reading all the commentary. And I ended up reminding him of of some stuff that he'd done that he it wasn't you know wasn't uh, in his uh, it wasn't wasn't something he remembered. Because or he'd never thought about it, it in just, that way. You know, I, I said, you know, you played uh, you played. Um, don't start me talking on uh, on the David Letterman show in 1985, uh, whatever it was, and he said I did. And I said yeah, yeah, you, you know it's it. I've never. He's, he, he thought he'd never played that song, and I 
I, I had to persuade him that it was real and that I, I had a bootleg of it. But, um, but he was also magnanimous. He was really, you know, I, I, I lucked out in that I, I kind of came along in this relatively forthcoming uh, phase of his career where he's written an autobiography and he's cooperated with that Martin Scorsese documentary. He's sort of come around to thinking that he should help people document the whole thing. Uh, so it wasn't a combative experience. He was very charming and funny and disarming, but in a sweet way. You know, he, he seemed to want want me to to get what he meant. He wasn't trying to, you know, be uh, famously gnomic or something. So um, so that was cool. That was great for me. The genius of yeah. Bob Dylan. I didn't yeah. give that piece that title. Rolling Stone did. <laughs> it's an awkward word, isn't it? <laughs> And so um, it's it is it's awkward, especially I, and genius. I threw I threw it at you earlier too. So Which, apologies. You know, the, the MacArthur people were, are constantly having to say we didn't call our award the the Genius Award. It's just called oh. a MacArthur Fellowship, but it's gotten that title that name attached to it in the popular lore. So um, you know. I guess I'm stuck. I guess I'm stuck. With you're, it. you're stuck with it, and I guess it's not the kind of thing that we want to be like. It's not a genius grant. Like you don't want to start right. saying that. But it's right? not a not genius grant. Yeah, exactly. It's a you know maybe genius grant. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Thumbs up. <laughs> um, so so with um, with Chronic City, Jonathan. Um, there's lots. Of, there's you know we we heard about Perkis not wanting to be the rock critic. So is that um, is is was that sort of um, I don't know. It's part of your background then, like writing for Rolling Stone yeah. and this whole... You know, I, I tend to be very um, irreverent about things that I'm actually very reverent about. I mean, I tend to, to make fun of the things I care about most deeply. It's a compulsion in the work. And so people sometimes think I'm sending something up. Uh, and they're not wrong, but it, it's almost always a indicator that I'm you love ter- it. terrifically engaged with it and very, very affectionate. And, and you know, I've, I've sought out this side role as a you know part-time rock critic uh sometimes lately and you know but i also think that the people who have devoted themselves to it the kind of the founding fathers like paul nelson who i mentioned earlier and um and you know grill marcus and and uh lester bangs and and chris gow and so on are kind of you know they're 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 writers that i've always idolized and it seems to me they sort of invented a language that you know for for talking seriously about stuff that other people thought was beneath, you know, was like totally ephemeral or, or, or just part popular of, culture. Yeah. You know, like a chewing gum wrapper. How would, how could you write an essay about that? But they, they insisted that it was, it was important and they made it, they made it different as a result. And matter. Yeah. And, and what is fiction like, like going, going towards like fictionalizing things in the story? Like, why does that matter? 